Okay, well, thanks for uh, joining me tonight. You can see uh, on the screen that we're up to Lesson 6. Tonight we're going to take a look at uh, the topic of salvation. Uh, we sang a song this morning. You might remember, The Lord is My Salvation, taken from Psalm 27.1. And that's what we're going to discuss tonight. What does that mean? You know, what is salvation? And so we're going to be taking a look at a number of different things about that. Now, my focus may be a little bit different. Uh, I didn't set in on Mark's first three, though I've set in in years gone by with his. Didn't sit in on Jim's two. Uh, but I'm not going to be going through the entire MacArthur lesson. I'm going to leave most of that for you. That's what the handout's for. Uh, there's uh, pertinent questions that if you'll take advantage of those, maybe do those during this week, uh, you can learn a lot more about salvation. I'm going to really pinpoint more of a specific area tonight. I want to share with you a number of truths regarding God's plan of salvation, but we're going to specifically address various facets of salvation uh, by studying these terms in Scripture. Uh, let's start with just a working definition. Many good definitions. This comes from an author named Richard Phillips. He says, salvation is a definitive act of God, whereby he forgives our sins forever and accepts us in Christ. But it's also a lifelong process of deliverance from the power of sin and the coming of new life, that is, after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness, as he quotes from Ephesians 4.24. So that's what we want to do. We want to take a look tonight at the topic of salvation. Uh, let's pray just before we dive in. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity tonight to share your truth. I pray that you would help me to be clear. I pray that I would be faithful to what the word presents. Thank you for our salvation. We pray that so often, and I pray that uh, tonight we might just have a little better understanding of all the multifaceted blessings that come under that heading of salvation. So we pray for your direction, uh, good clear minds from those listening tonight, and I pray that it will be a blessing to them. Thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, just before we get into some of the facets of salvation, I want you to turn to the back of the first page on this handout. This would actually be the first page if you actually have the MacArthur book. I think Mark told me that a number of you have purchased that. Uh, I don't have the details with me. We'll have to see Mark if you want to pick one of these up. But uh, it's an excellent booklet on 13 Lessons of the Fundamentals of the Faith. I want to draw your attention just for a moment to the download of the message. I want to really, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to encourage you to download this message. It is excellent. He calls it exchanging living death for dying life. But the main thing that MacArthur is going to go over in this message and he hits it over and over again, is that man is dead unless he knows Jesus Christ as his Savior. Alive physically, 
but dead spiritually. And in the sermon, he's going to go on to explain that paradox, what he means by a living death versus a dying life. The fact that man is dead in his sin, that's going to be foundational in helping us to establish the true nature of salvation. In fact, I would say you can avoid a lot of mistakes, a lot of errors in doctrine, and you can gain a lot of truth if you'll just hang on to those three words. Man is dead. He's dead in his trespasses and sin. And so I encourage you to uh, go to the site. You can see it right there. Uh, Grace to you, gty.org slash foundations or fundamentals of the faith, FOF. I also would like to bring your attention down to the quote at the bottom here. I'm sorry that that didn't come through very clearly, but as part of his message, he actually quotes this. And so I'd like to read that because it is blurred a little bit on the margin. Read that to you because I think it's an excellent quote from John Eady, a 19th century Scottish preacher. He said, men without Christ are death walking. The beauties of holiness do not attract man in his moral insensibility, nor do the miseries of hell deter him. You can talk about heaven to him, he's not interested. You can talk about hell to him, he's not afraid. Now this kind of man doesn't need renewal. This kind of man doesn't need repair. This kind of man doesn't need restoration, resuscitation. This kind of man needs resurrection. He needs life because he's dead. And so, as I said, as you read that message, as you uh, listen, rather, to that audio message, uh, you'll get that hammered home very much. Now, what we're going to do tonight is concentrate on just this page, okay? What would be the first page in the manual, the back of the front page, God's sovereignty and salvation. But I'm going to do it by an expanded outline, which is on the front of the first page. So this is actually what we're going to go by tonight. It's very close to what MacArthur has, but I've expanded it because I want to get a little bit deeper. Uh, I don't want to overwhelm you with terms, but on the other hand, I think it'll just be a blessing to talk about salvation from all the different facets because salvation involves so much. And I think, you'll, I think you'll appreciate and gain from that uh, tonight. Let's start by uh, opening our Bibles to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to take a look at this first Roman numeral. What is the ultimate purpose in salvation? And I've already given it away for you. After the dash, it's the glorification of God. And you can get that clearly from this passage in Ephesians. Now, we're not going to read the entire 3 through 14. We're going to skip a little bit. But I would like to uh, say this, and then we're going to read verses 4 through 6. Believers receive such immense blessings from salvation that I think it's easy for us to fall into the belief that salvation is all about us what I'm receiving, and obviously that's important. 
But we're going to see in this passage that the ultimate purpose in salvation is for God's glory. It's so that he might shine, shine even brighter as he is able to display men and women that he takes from a lost state and saves their souls. So let's read verses 4 through 6 here in Ephesians chapter 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, this is speaking of the Father, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. And that phrase that I want to draw your attention to is to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the reason why he predestined us for adoption. That is why he saved us, that he might receive praise because our salvation is showing his great grace. So salvation is not man-centered. It's God-centered. MacArthur says about this entire section, verses 3 through 14, he says, As he, Paul, extols the divine giver of every spiritual blessing, he declares that all aspects of man's salvation, the election by the Father, in verses 4 through 6, the redemption accomplished by the Son, in verses 7 through 12, and the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit, in verses 13 and 14, have all been carried out to the praise of the glory of his grace. We've already read verses 4 through 6, and that's where the Father's role was discussed, and the fact that he did this for his own glory. Now, if you would, take a look at verses 7 and 12. They're the first and the last verse regarding Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's speaking of the Lord Jesus. Now drop to 12, which wraps up the section about him. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, here it comes, might be to the praise of his glory. And so we see here that the son's sacrifice for our sins is again to be to the praise of his glory. And then if you would, look at verses 13 and 14, which talk of the Spirit. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so three times repeated in just those 11 verses that that is what God had in mind with salvation. The scriptures repeatedly give testimony that God has a fundamental commitment to the glory of his name. In Ephesians 3:10, we won't turn there, but the saved in this age are specifically mentioned as an object of wonder to the heavenly beings as God's glory is revealed by his grace in saving us. In Ephesians 2:10, were said to be his workmanship, were on display for the universe to give glory to God. The Old Testament archetype of God's salvation would be the redemption of Israel 
from bondage in Egypt. Speaking of this pinnacle of God's saving deliverance, the psalmist made the following comments. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. There was nothing holy about the nation of Israel. They were just gripers from start to finish. And so the psalmist goes on to say that in spite of this, he says, yet he saved them. Because they were so good? No. He saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. In other words, that he might receive glory. We find the same thing over in Ezekiel 36. God declares that he will eventually someday save Israel in the future. Yet he explicitly denies that it was for their own sake, but rather for his holy name. You can see there the reference. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, and so glorify the Lord. So with that background, uh, let's go to Roman numeral 2 and look at the details of our great salvation. So we will kind of flip the switch now and talk about what all these benefits are to us. We're going to talk, first of all, about what uh, uh, theologians call an application of salvation, or sometimes it's talked about as an order of salvation. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. Uh, I'm sorry, 8, chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. 829 of Romans. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You can see here that these verses seem to indicate that there's some kind of logical sequence as to how salvation is applied to man. A number of theologians have expanded that Romans list to include uh, a number of other steps. And I want to get into many of them tonight uh, just for the blessing of showing you uh, what your salvation provides for you or how it was applied now, we want to be careful with this. An order of salvation is primarily just for teaching purposes. Uh, we're not saying that these happen in a temporal order. In fact, they do not. A number of them happen simultaneously. But they do happen, it seems to be, in a logical order. In other words, this precedes this, which precedes this. Uh, you can see on your outline uh, under Roman numeral 2 now uh, the eight points there. Foreknowledge, the first of these saving blessings, is actually pretemporal. So in a way, it precedes the application of redemption. But then the next number of steps, from effectual call through adoption. Now, they're definitely ordered in a logical sense because they are not temporally different. They occur at the same time. Uh, but there does seem to be a logic there. For instance, I'll give you just a couple of them. Uh, we have faith preceding justification. Why? 
Well, only because faith is said to produce justification. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Uh, justification would seem to precede adoption because you certainly could not have rights in the family of God if you don't have a right standing with him to begin with. And so there seems to be a logic. Then sanctification and perseverance, those occur during the remainder of the Christian life. And then finally, glorification completes the application of redemption at the return of the Lord Jesus. So we're going to take a look at these then, one at a time, and spend a few minutes with each. Now, there's lots of verses, okay? And so uh, I know I don't give you much space, but I did at least double space there. You can squeeze some references in, which uh, I would encourage you to do because we're going to have tons of verses. And uh, then you can study some of these on your own later. In fact, some I will only give a reference to uh, for time's sake. But I want to give you enough to give you a flavor for these. So this is something that you can uh, study at a later time as well. All right, let's begin with foreknowledge. What does foreknowledge mean? Uh, God is sometimes pictured as looking down the corridors of time, and he's discovering who, by his own free will, would believe in Christ. And these he chose to save on the basis of their foreseen faith. Thus, election rests ultimately on man, not God. But the Greek verb for foreknowledge does not mean simply to know in advance, but knowledge that's characterized by an intimate, personal relationship. One author has said this, and I think it's very good, to foreknow is to forelove. There's other passages besides the Romans 8 that we can look to that might give us some help here as to what foreknowledge means. Look with me at 1 Peter 1.20 on the screen for you. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. If foreknowledge meant nothing more than seeing in advance, or seeing, looking backwards, the verse would almost be meaningless. You'd have to say the following to be consistent, that God looked down the corridors of time, saw that Christ would be willing to come and die for sinners, and on that basis chose him to be the Savior. That would be the same parallel logic, and so that would not make any sense. We also have over in Romans 11.2, Scripture says God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Well, we're not to believe that Israel is the only group of people that he knew in advance, right? No, you can see by the way it's worded here, his people whom he foreknew. There's a loving relationship there that he had with the nation of Israel, founded on the covenants of promise. So foreknowledge means that God planned before, not that he simply observed before. The Romans 8 passage, remember, it starts with whom he foreknew. The person, not their actions. He didn't look down in time to see what they were going to do. It says, rather, whom he foreknew. 
with the emphasis on the people themselves and his relationship to them. If you want to jot another verse down, 1 Peter 1, 2, we'll speak to that as well. All right, then uh, let's take a look next at predestination, which I have on the same line, predestination, election, all of that. Predestination, then, would be God's eternal choice to elect those who will be saved. Election, then, is a free and sovereign choice of God, made in eternity past and by setting his love on certain individuals. And on the basis of nothing in themselves, but solely on the good pleasure of his will to give them eternal life. It's like his election of Israel as a nation. So we have, again, an Old Testament example of this. Lengthy one here. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you. I might add, not only were they the fewest in number, they were not the most moral in number. In fact, some of the prophets, as you read later in the Old Testament, they'll even come to the point where they say, Israel committed sins that not even the heathen would think of. So it was not on the basis of their goodness, not on the basis of them being a powerful or multitudinous people, but it's very clear there. It's simple. God loves you. And he chose that nation because of that love. Look again at that Ephesians chapter 1 passage. You may have caught this as I was reading. I'm reading out of the ESV. The ESV and the NASB have a period after blameless before him. And then they start a new sentence, in love he predestined. Now I know the King James has the in love at the trailing end of verse 4. Okay, I'm not going to argue that. I'm simply going to say that I prefer the newer translations at that point because it fits so well with what we just talked about. Why does God choose? Because he loves. And if you'll read that in a newer translation, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, period. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so God's choosing, predestination, is a sovereign choice, and it's based simply on his love. I cannot explain it any deeper than that. Uh, I've heard many a preacher say uh, men have tossed this around for thousands of years, and no one has come to a conclusion that satisfies everybody. But that's what it is. I'm going to go with the simple things of Scripture. In love, he chose. There's many other references that uh, deal with this. Here's one from 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Here I liked actually the New King James uh, rendering of this. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation 
through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. In fact, it's customary for the New Testament authors to refer to believers either as chosen or elect. I'll give you just one example of each. Here in Colossians 3.12, Paul talks about Christians being chosen ones. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And when they don't use chosen one, they often use elect. Here's 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And we could go on and on. Uh, another reference would be 1 Thessalonians 1.4, which we won't have time for. All right, so getting those pre-temporal items out of the way, Let's move on to the application, the true application of salvation. Begins with what's called an effectual call or regeneration, sometimes referred to in scripture as the new birth. Man in his natural state is characterized as dead spiritually. That's what I was telling you you'll gain out of that MacArthur sermon. He will hammer that home. Man is dead. He's entirely unresponsive to spiritual truth. And that's clear from Ephesians 2.1. Paul says flat out, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But in the exercise of his sovereign pleasure, God issues an effectual call in the heart of the elect. That's discussed here in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love, there it is again, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. That's the idea of regeneration, an effectual call of God. The Spirit breathes life into an individual, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So God alone is the active agent in bringing about the miracle of the new birth. Man can't contribute. He's dead. Uh, This is clear from John chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Man's not responsible, but of God. All right, to all who did receive him, he gave this right because it is of God. This would explain the wording that we find, say, over in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So at the fundamental level, God's call or regeneration is a divine imparting of eternal spiritual life into a spiritually dead sinner. It's interesting that Jesus uses this imagery of being born again as he's discussing uh, the new birth with Nicodemus in John 3. Uh, In physical birth, what contribution does the child make in conception or birth? Nada, okay? He doesn't. He's dead and depraved and as such cannot contribute to rebirth to spiritual life. 
So the call, an effectual call, not, not just a general gospel call, though that can lead to an effectual call, but the effectual call of God gives life to an individual, what's called the new birth. Now remember, a number of these now are actually simultaneous. So don't get the idea that you're called or you get a new birth and then years later maybe you will be converted, okay? Conversion is the next thing that we have on the list, but it's just logical. You can't be converted if you're not alive, right? And so you are first regenerated and then converted. And it's thought of as the first act of the sinner's renewed nature would be to be converted. That's a conscious decision to do two things, repent of sin and believe in Christ for salvation. One commentator discussed it this way. When God shines the light of regeneration into the sinner's heart, he opens man's eyes so that he can see the bankruptcy of sin and the worthiness of Christ. I like Acts 26.18. It has something very similar to that. Paul says there, to open their eyes, there's regeneration, so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. There's both aspects in two different uh, analogies. Darkness to light, power of Satan to God, a repentance, a turning from sin, and faith, believing in Christ, turning to God. In fact, if you think about it, it's impossible to turn away from one thing unless you're turning towards something else. And so scripture describes the gospel call as a summons to do what? Repent and believe. And that's what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry. Here we are in the first chapter of Mark. And as soon as he sets out on his own ministry with John in prison, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is a great verse that shows this as well. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There's your repentance and your faith. A turning away from idols, sin, a turning to God, a personal belief and acceptance of Jesus Christ as Savior. We then move on to uh, justification. This answers one of mankind's most basic questions. How can sinners come to be in a right relationship with a holy God? God is perfectly righteous. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, while God's perfectly holy, man has sinned against God and he falls way short of that holy standard. In fact, what does Romans 3.23 say? Many of you will know that. Yeah. For all have sinned and come short or fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. So justification is a declaration that a person has been restored to a state of righteousness through belief and trust in the work of Christ. Rather, 
than on his own accomplishments. It's instantaneous. It's an instantaneous change. In the case of justification, it's not that the accused is innocent. Far from it. But that another has paid in full the penalty for his crimes. How can God be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ? As Romans 3.26 asks the question. By an act of imputation. God credits or reckons our sin to Christ and punishes him in our place and he imputes Christ's righteousness to believers and grants them eternal life in him. I would encourage you to read later 2 Corinthians 5.21, excellent verse in talking about that. We next see the term adoption. The New Testament builds on the blessing of human adoption by using it as an analogy to describe God's love for us. We were spiritual orphans under the cruel oppression of sin and Satan. By nature, Ephesians calls us children of wrath, sons of disobedience. But God, eager to display his grace, intervened on our behalf. Take a look at Galatians 4, 4, and 5 with me here on the screen. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, made of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God, sending his son, made that possible. God legally places regenerated and justified sinners into his family, so that they become sons and daughters of God. And they enjoy all the rights and privileges of one who's a member of God's eternal family. I'd encourage you later, if you want to jot it down, Romans 8, 14 through 17, address that well. And also Galatians 3, 26, dealing with adoption. Sanctification. And with this, we'll close out the grouping. Excuse me. uh, Yeah. We'll close out, no, we already did. Adoption ends it, my apologies. Sanctification and perseverance, we'll now talk about something ongoing. Now, although it's primarily understood in this kind of scenario to be a process in which the believers conformed to the image of Christ, the process does have a definite beginning. So there is something that's referred to as positional sanctification. Uh, That occurs when the Spirit first imparts life, into the soul of the dead sinner. He imparts a cleansing from sin. Man's nature is sanctified. It's transformed from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's what the scripture calls a new creation. You probably know this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, not becoming one, okay? We're not into... uh, progressive sanctification yet you are a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come and so we do have that that uh, we talk about sometimes in scripture but what we want to talk about uh, here is mainly the ongoing process now, this takes place throughout the life of a believer and it's what I mentioned a moment ago as progressive sanctification The believer may enjoy a victory over the dominion of sin 
as a result of this new union with Christ, but his heart and life are not totally perfect. They're not purified. The penalty's paid for, the power's been broken, but the presence of sin still remains. Now, the Bible repeatedly gives a call to holiness, and it gives it in the present tense. Uh, The Greek present tense involves ongoing action, continuous action. And just as sanctification had a definitive beginning, we then move into a continuous process throughout the believer's life. Verses such as Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And the idea there would be, but be continually transformed, ongoingly transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Same thing over in Philippians. Paul makes it clear that progressive sanctification is part of the believer's life. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own. One thing I do, I press on toward the goal. I've got something I'm shooting for. I'm not going to get it in this life, but that's my direction. And then, in glory, I'll get the prize. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul said, I haven't arrived but I'm working toward it. I'm being progressively sanctified. Then just as sanctification has a definitive beginning, it will at some point be brought to completion. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. There is a culmination to sanctification. We will be completely sanctified. We also experience during this life perseverance. The eternal security of a believer is founded on the preserving nature of God. He's that kind of God. It's grounded in his unchanging love, his infinite power. Uh, Paul presents the events of redemption in Romans 8 as if it is an unbroken chain of God's grace. Remember what Romans 8 talked about. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. He makes it sound like it's an unbroken chain, and that would speak to perseverance of the same. One who is called is going to be kept. Take a look at Philippians 1.6. I guess this would be my life's verse. If you wanted to talk about a life verse, I've always fallen back on this. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in me, I'll say, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to complete what he started. He's going to complete our sanctification. He's going to preserve us during this life. Uh, one that you folks might really enjoy falling back on from time to time if you ever have any doubt about uh, your assurance, surety that Christ is going to keep you. 
Paul tells you this, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, powers, heights, depths, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, It's kind of simple, but we're not holding on to him. He's holding on to us. We also find over in John chapter 10, Christ says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The saint is preserved for all time. And then finally here in Roman numeral 2, glorification, the final step in the application of salvation, the final act. It's interesting that Romans 8 This passage that we talked about, Paul uses the past tense in describing glorification. If you notice that, and they were glorified. Oh, wait a minute. Something's not right there. That's future. Our glorification is future. And yet he uses a past tense at that point. And that's one way of saying that glorification is such a sure thing. It's as as if it's already happened. It's that guaranteed. Glorification can be defined as a radical transformation, both body and soul of the believer, perfecting them in holiness, fitting them for eternal life on a new earth in perfect communion with God. 1 Corinthians 15.51 speaks a little bit more to the body, though I don't like separating body and soul a lot here, but I think this speaks more to our glorified body. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So glorification is definitely a transformation of the body. And I think here in Ephesians 5, it's speaking more toward the soul. Again, not making a sharp distinction, but so that he might present the church to himself in splendor when he returns without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here is that perfected state that the believer longs for. Another reference, if you want to write it down, I am going to quote it. We won't turn to it, and I don't have a slide of it. Philippians 3.21, where Paul says that Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, and that's to take place at the resurrection. So that's that's the application of salvation. As I said, uh, many different, I looked up many different authors, doctrinal books. This seems to be generally uh, an order that I find over and over again. I hope it'll be helpful to you. The third Roman numeral, and uh, we'll have to move here a little bit quicker. I actually have the 615 if I need it, right? I don't intend to keep you that long, but I hope we'll get through that. I want to talk about the, the blessings of salvation now for a minute. And uh, I got this out of a little booklet, this picture. Uh, I've had this around for ages. I really don't know that much about him. Uh, But Charles Horn wrote a book entitled Salvation. I imagine I've had it since the 80s, so that dates me a little bit. 
But uh, I thought this was excellent in just showing some of the blessings of salvation and what that particular blessing covered for us. And so we find that the Bible talks about a sacrifice, which is the answer to our guilt, propitiation, the answer to God's wrath, reconciliation, the answer to God's alienation from us, and redemption, the answer to our bondage to sin. So let's talk just for a few minutes about uh, these four items. First of all, sacrifice. The New Testament explicitly identifies the death of Christ as a sacrifice for sin. Look at Hebrews 9.26. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He offered himself as a sacrifice to put away sin. I'd also encourage you later to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. Say something similar, but it adds a little bit more to it uh, if you want to check that out later. Now, sacrifice, of course, is rooted in the Old Testament, and it was divinely instituted provision where sin might be covered. But unlike Old Testament sacrifices, Christ's sacrifice was unique in several respects. One, it's singular because it was offered once for all, where the Levitical sacrifices had to be offered over and over again. Secondly, it's singular because it alone had the inherent quality to atone for sin. Animal sacrifices could only do so symbolically in anticipation of Christ's work. In fact, Hebrews 10.4 says, For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And thirdly, it's singular because it opened up unlimited access to the presence of God for all his people. That truth was illustrated so well by the gospel writers when they discussed the tearing of the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies during the crucifixion. Under the Mosaic system, only the high priest went into the most holy place, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. So Christ's death, our salvation, is based on a sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice for us. We also have propitiation, a great blessing. By his substitutionary death, Christ satisfied God's anger against sin and turned his wrath away from us. Uh, That's a good one word if you just want to hang on to that. Satisfaction. Propitiation has to do with satisfaction. Turned his wrath from us. Who were bound otherwise to suffer for it ourselves. Romans 3, 24 and 25 says, We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I think you have to go back, and I'm going to show you one verse, and I'm just going to quickly mention a couple others. I think to really appreciate Paul here at the end of the third chapter of Romans, you've got to recognize that throughout the first three chapters, one of his main themes has been the wrath of God. 
And so how appropriate that he ends that section by talking about a way to satisfy that wrath. I'll show you just the one, Romans 1, 18. For the wrath, there it is, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then I'll just have to mention because of time, but Romans 2, 5, wrath. Romans 2, 8, wrath. Romans 3, 5, wrath. The wrath of God as it's displayed to the moral man, to the Jew, to mankind in general. Wrath, wrath, wrath. And finally, in Romans 3, 24 and 25, an answer to that, propitiation. MacArthur had this to say, Every ounce of wrath that the saved sinner deserved, all the wrath that God would have exercised on the sinner in the eternal torments of hell was poured out fully on our substitute in those three terrible hours on Calvary. Because of this, there is no longer any wrath left for God's people. God is propitious toward them, for their sin has been paid for. We also have reconciliation as a blessing of our salvation. Man's sin set up a barrier. Man's sin created an enmity and an alienation between God and man. In reconciliation, this ground of the enmity is removed and it's dealt with. Thereby, it accomplishes peace. There's been a change of relationship. I like that little phrase for reconciliation. I know uh, somewhere, I think I've got it marked, uh, Colossians talks about it, and I've marked up above that, change of relationship. That's a good one to remember for reconciliation. A change in relationship has to take place. Look what Isaiah said years before Christ came. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So there is definitely uh, enmity, alienation. Uh, You'll see in some of the verses coming up another term, uh, a hostile relationship exists because of our sin. Romans 5.10 says that before we were saved, we were literally enemies. For if while we were enemies... But then, reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. But notice that implies, before this, we were enemies of God. (coughs) Romans 8, 7 uses that term, hostile. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile. That's what you are as an enemy. That's what happens because we're alienated. We're hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And then on it goes with a number of references. Here the two words are cast together in Ephesians 2. And might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to one God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So you can see that reconciliation directly brings an end to the hostility. Here's the reference I was talking about, Colossians 1. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, there's both the words we used coming out, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. This, of course, was accomplished by Christ's sacrifice. And then finally, and I appreciate your good patience as I've gone through this tonight, redemption. Man is redeemed from the bondage of sin and the law through the payment of Christ's shed blood as a ransom. Take a look here in Revelation chapter 5. The scene is in heaven, and the voice, many voices are calling out, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. To be redeemed is to be ransomed. Okay. The meaning of the, old, uh, the New Testament word is to purchase out of the marketplace and often has reference to buying a slave. And so these slaves to sin are bought with a price and Christ purchases them. Christ redeems men by a ransom price and that had to be his life. Look at Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the final one we'll have to turn to or look at 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19a. I chose the New King James Version here just because uh, I like the idea of bringing back redeemed. I know the other verses had ransom, so I wanted to get one verse in with redeemed. Uh, knowing that you were not redeemed, or it could have been ransomed, I think newer translations do that, with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your father's but with the precious blood of Christ. There's the payment in that last phrase. We are redeemed with a payment. doesn't involve money, but the precious blood of Christ. If you want to jot a couple down, we won't turn at all. Galatians 4, 5. Titus 2, 14. Then I'll end with this thought. No wonder Paul after finishing his lengthy doctrinal section about salvation in Romans. And really, in one way or another, all the first 11 chapters are about salvation, in one sense or another. He concludes it in 1133 by saying the following, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments And how inscrutable his ways. And I say that to end saying that I don't have all the answers. But I'm accepting by faith what God has done for me. And I know that you feel the same way. And uh, we'll rejoice in that salvation that we share together. Let's pray and I'll let you go. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share your word I thank you that it indeed has everything we need for life and godliness. One of the things we need in life and we need for our godliness is to understand our salvation, to appreciate it, to thank you for it, 
and to recognize that there's so many facets to discuss. It's such a glorious salvation. And indeed, it's immeasurable. We can't, we can't obtain it, but we can strive to learn more and more about you. Thank you for the written word that directs us to Christ, opens our blind eyes, allows us to see truth, and willingly, of our own will, want to come to Christ because you have opened our eyes. So I thank you for the time tonight. Uh, Bless each one as they go to their homes. Give us safety. Pray for a good week. Ask that you would uh, uh, bless our time on uh, Friday evening and Saturday with the conference. And then next Sunday as we return to worship you, uh, we give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.